The person we're going to be speaking about today uh, takes us back to the 1800s and um, the, uh, actually it takes us to two countries. We start in Germany and then we go to England. Now, George Mueller was born into a fairly wealthy family. He was the son of a tax collector. He was born in Prussia, which is northern Germany now. And he grew up as a bit of a wild child. He was, um, I guess you could say, he was pretty naughty. Um, he, he was actually, at the age of 15, he was out drinking and gambling all night. Um, and little did he know that that very night his mother was dying. And when he arrived home early that morning, his father told him that his mother had died and he couldn't care less, really. It had very little impact on him whatsoever. And that's the sort of person George Mueller was in his early years. By the time he was 16, he uh, actually found himself in prison for a month. Uh, what he'd done was he'd booked himself a night's holiday with no money at all to pay for it and he stayed at a fancy hotel for a good week or so uh, and then took off without paying his bill, then booked himself into another hotel and stayed another week or so and uh, took off. And he thought he was very clever to have gotten away with it all, but of course uh, he hadn't and he was uh, thrown into prison. Um, his father was very good to him and being a wealthy man, his father bailed him out of prison and paid the fines and everything. Um, but none of this seemed to correct George Mueller's ways. In fact, he was just sorry that he got caught half the time. So his youth was spent cheating, lying. He even cheated his best friends, you know. Uh, he, he was involved in a lot of theft. Um, and he was a really good trickster. Uh, he, he, he tended to, to get his own way in the world and he lived very much for himself. Despite all of this, his father really wanted him, and it sounds very strange to say this, but his father really wanted him to become a pastor of a Lutheran church. Now, not because his father was in any way uh, hoping that this would in some way encourage him to live for the Lord or anything like that, but it was just seen as a very good and honourable living. In fact, his father thought that if he could uh, you know, start uh, be sort of the pastor of a, a fairly wealthy parish, then he would get a lot of money and his father would be able to retire in a nice country cottage and everything would be lovely. That's, that was his father's plan. And so his father intended him to go to a special university where he would actually be learning theology and become qualified to be a pastor. Now, George wasn't really in the mood for any of this. Uh, the idea of studying theology was, was pretty bland to him. Uh, but he did end up going along to this university. But unfortunately, he spent most of his time in the alehouses. Uh, where he had very soon a huge reputation as the life of the party, the, uh, the, the one who would uh, be able to down uh, you know, 10 beers in, in a minute and so on. And he, he was gambling and pretty much leading other students astray. Not that many of the other students at the university were Christians. In fact, very few of them were, even though they were studying to become pastors. So one day he, was, uh, he met an old childhood friend at his university. This was the university he attended. And this old childhood friend was named Beta. And Beta was a very, I guess you could say, George remembered him as a very religious sort of person. He was a, a good moral kind of character. And despite George's wild living, there was something in him that, that told him that you know, he had to change at some point. He couldn't be the pastor that was going to shepherd the flock 
and be living a wild life on the side. He knew that that was not a possibility. And so we thought it would be good for him to befriend this uh, man, Beta, because he thought the good morals might rub off to, onto him and you know, he would start to mend his ways. But unfortunately that didn't happen. It was the other way around. George was the big influence over Beta and uh, Beta started to follow him to the alehouses and started to gamble and so on. But there was something about Beta that held him back. And one day he decided not to go, to go with George and George was, said to him, what are you doing? Where are you going? And he said, oh, I'm nowhere you'd want to go. And George said, excuse me? How do you know where I'd want to go and what I'd like to do? And Peter was like, you, you won't want to go here. And Peter's like, okay, challenge. I'll go with you. Wherever you're going, I'll go. And uh, Peter said, um, I'm going to a Bible study. And uh, George was a little, he laughed a little bit and he said, oh, why, why do you think I wouldn't want to go to a Bible study? And Peter said, well, they read the Bible and they sing songs and they pray. Well, anyway, George had made his deal, so he went along too. And when he got there, he thought he would have a bit of a laugh and it would be a bit of a good time. But as he walked into the house, because it was a house, it wasn't a church, um, he, he suddenly felt very inferior here were people who prayed and when they prayed, George heard for the first time that these people genuinely meant what they were saying. When the person who was out the front was talking about the scripture, they, they were looking at the scripture not as a, a literary example of nice language or anything like that, but they, they were looking at it as something practical that would help them live out their lives. And George suddenly realised that these people really believed in God and wanted to live for him. And this was the first time that he'd met Christians, real Christians like this. Well, it had a big impact on him. And when he left, uh, he was determined to go back again. And that week he went every day to this little Bible study that was happening in someone's house. And by the end of the week... George Mueller was on his knees in his little university room uh, and he asked the Lord to forgive him for all that he'd done in his life and he really wanted to start all over again. And so, George Mueller, at the age of about 1920, well, about 20 years old, was converted. Now, this, uh, he had a huge change in character. Previously, of course, he was the life of the party. He was the instigator and now his friends, you know, even though his behaviour changed so dramatically, his friends were actually quite revolted. They were like, what is wrong with you? Why, why are you not coming along with us? Why have you started to go to this, this person's house and you're starting to read the, the Bible and, you know, religious books? You never had an interest before. And it was true, like George uh, had suddenly lost all interest in all the things that he had done previously. And he was... In fact, within six weeks, he wanted and he, he, he had a great desire to be a missionary and go and travel to these far-off places that you know, people had never heard of in those days, places like the Middle East and maybe even China, to spread the gospel. He really wanted to do that. And he had met people who were planning and, on being missionaries and so on and it had a huge influence on him. He thought that he better go to his father. Their relationship was terrible and quite dysfunctional prior to this and he really wanted to seek his father's forgiveness and show him that he had truly changed and he also wanted to tell his father that he didn't want to become a pastor of a Lutheran church anymore but he wanted to be a missionary 
And he thought that his father would really appreciate this. And so when he announced this, he was quite shocked when his father became really angry and said to him, you know, I have not paid for years and years of education for you to just throw it away and become something so dishonourable like a missionary. It didn't matter to his father that George had changed completely. And I don't know whether his father perhaps believed it at that time. But the idea that George would do something, throw away his comfortable retirement and become a missionary was unspeakable. And his final words to George Miller was just, get out of my sight. So George Miller decided that he would not be able to ask for money from his father anymore. This posed a great problem. He was at a university. There were fees to be paid. There were books to be bought. He was renting a little room in the university, as most students did. And so he discovered that he had no means to pay for himself at all. And he didn't want to accept uh, any money from his father. He knew that, that it wouldn't be right to do that. And so he got on his knees and said to the Lord, I've uh, cut ties with my earthly father in this but I'm trusting you, my heavenly Father, to provide for me. This was one of the first occasions where he really reached out in faith. And about one hour later, or less than an hour later, um, he, there was a knock on his little, little door, his dorm room, and one of the tutors from the university came in and said that there were two Americans, professors, who'd come visiting to the university. They couldn't speak German and everyone knew that George Mueller, being very good with languages, he could speak English. And so within that hour, George Mueller found himself with a job, a job of translating and uh, interpreting things and, and also teaching, teaching uh, German. And these American professors were happy to pay very uh, handsomely for this. And the money that he received was enough to cover his tuition. Not only that, but there was an orphanage across the road and they had one little room spare that they used for students who were struggling and uh, they actually just offered it to him out of the blue. And so George Mueller at this very young age really saw that in fact the Lord does provide when we trust in him completely. Now, when he was uh, in this orphanage and he was uh, in the little room there and he was renting that room, he got to know the, the man who ran it, who was a Christian. And he invited George Mueller as a student uh, to, to preach his first sermon at a local church, a little countryside chapel. And so George Mueller took this really seriously and he spent hours you know, working on his sermon, really crafting it, making sure the language was just right. And then he spent hours memorising the whole thing, word for word, with a proper expression and good sort of emphasis on the right words. And then when he came to the chapel that morning, he stood at the pulpit and he delivered that sermon word perfectly. Everything was right, the emphasis was good, the language was perfect. And on his way out, as he was shaking hands with all the uneducated farmers and laborers and widows in this country town, one man stopped and said, I'm sure it was a very good sermon, sir. Couldn't understand a word. And so, and George Miller was quite shocked at this. And he thought, what's the point of this? These, these people, these uneducated people, and, and here I am speaking things and they think it's good because they don't understand anything. And so, when he was invited to lunch, he excused himself and, and asked if he could uh, take some time to uh, think about what he would do in the evening because he was going to speak again. 
And he got his sermon that he'd so meticulously prepared and he threw it in the bin and he prayed and he said to the Lord, I don't know now what to do. All all those things that I've done at university and theological college, this is not right. I need somehow to communicate to these people. And so the Lord gave him something to say and he spoke so differently, so simply and clearly and many people were helped that evening, probably for the first time. After this time, he was uh, in touch with some other Christians and called, uh, they, they wanted him to be a missionary. Uh, and they were going to send him not to a far off country at all, but somewhere quite uh, nearby really, although in those days it was still seen as far off. They wanted him to go to London. And to go to London to witness and spread the gospel amongst the Jewish ghettos there. There were many Jews who lived in these communities and there were Christians who were sent out as missionaries to go and preach to them. And uh, George Miller was very excited about this and he overcame uh, uh, many obstacles to get there. And finally, he was in London and he was studying Hebrew 12 hours a day. And in six months, he was able to speak Hebrew fluently and read the Bible in Hebrew as well, as well as write a little bit of Hebrew. So he had worked very hard uh, in order to do this. And uh, he worked so hard that he actually became quite sick. And Mueller had very, very ill health actually and previously had burst a blood vessel in his stomach and this flared up again and the doctors told him, you know, you need to slow down, you need to stop, you need to rest. And in those days what they used to say was, you need to go to the countryside to get some fresh air. And so right on the brink of being able to be a missionary to these Jewish communities, he was sent to a seaside town by the name of Tainmouth. And here in Tainmouth, uh, which was a, a country, it was a port, little, little tiny seaside town, a fishing town, um, he, he was there and he was just, uh, I guess, uh, meant to be resting and recovering. But he met a man by the name of Henry Craig. Henry Craig was a good Christian man and he had been serving in this little town um, for many years and, and he also had uh, introduced George Mueller to some missionaries. There was a man there uh, by the name of Mr. Groves who had uh, actually sold everything he had and gone to Persia to be a missionary. And George Mueller met this family and was so, you know, really inspired by this and the idea of going to this country that nobody had really ever sort of been to and broken into. And he, again, this idea of becoming a missionary was really at the forefront of his mind. Through Henry Craig as well, George Mueller learned to read the Bible. Previously, he he was reading the Bible, but he was probably reading more spiritual books about the Bible than the Bible itself. And Henry taught him to really look at what the Lord says and take the Lord at his word. And so George Mueller started to read the scripture very faithfully. And in fact, uh, he pretty much averaged reading the Bible through four times every year. Now, during this time, when he returned to London, um, he, he thought to himself, what, why should I just wait until I've finished studying? Why, why can't I just get out there now and meet people and, and hand out tracts and talk to people? Why, why do I need to wait for it to officially start? And so he did that. He went out onto the streets and he started to hand out tracts. And what he discovered was that it wasn't just these Jewish people that needed the Lord. In fact, everybody did. Because England at the time, although everyone was called Christian, 
very few people were. It was very nominal. People were just labelled Christian and they really didn't understand a thing. And so he, he really, really wanted to share the gospel, not just to this one group of people, but to everybody. And uh, he decided, and uh, the Lord led him, to not continue with the mission society. He didn't think that it was the right thing for him to do. Um, and he felt like the mission field for him was perhaps uh, not as specific as just these Jewish people that they wanted to send him to. Henry Craig encouraged him to return to Tainmouth. And so he did. And he became the pastor of a tiny little chapel called Ebenezer Chapel in this seaside town. There were 18 uneducated salmon fishermen who attended this little chapel faithfully. And uh, some people sort of wondered why this foreign man from Germany had come all this way to serve in a chapel with 18 people, all uneducated, and he was really highly qualified. Uh, People thought it was very strange. But this chapel grew half the time because people were curious and wanted to hear his accent, but it did grow nonetheless. And the other thing that happened here in Tainmouth is that he met a lady, the sister of the missionary, Mr. Groves, Her name was Mary. She was a bit older than uh, George Mueller and she was um, in her 30s actually. And she had a strong faith and the two of them fell in love and they were married in 1830. Now both of them shared this idea of living as an example to their community. And their community was just this little fishing town. It was a very poor town, pretty simple And Mary had brought with her, of course, as custom would have it, all the little ornaments and little tea sets and all of those things from her home. And she set it up in in their little house, which George had previously had all bare, just being a bachelor there. Um, And she made it all very nice and pretty. But when George looked around, he said to her, no, we have to get rid of it all. We can't have all of this. We We should just get rid of it and sell it. We need to live very simply, like the people we're serving. And so, Mary gathered all her things, sold the lot, and they used the money to help the poor. Not only that, but uh, George had been reading in the scripture, and he had something that was bothering his conscience. It was something that was quite traditional in those days. It was called pew renting. Any pastor would uh, have a, who had a church, would rent out the pews to different families. You see, the richer you were, the closer towards the front you could sit. And there were bigger pews and there was more space and it was more comfortable. Probably even got a cushion. And uh, they, this, this pew renting was something that everybody did. It wasn't just some churches, it was across Europe. And this was very normal. But George really did not like this idea. He really felt it contradicted the scripture, the idea of favoritism. The rich had more say in how things went in the church and the poor people could hardly hear because they were sort of in the back corner squished in the, in the pews that they could afford. And so this idea of pew renting, he, he thought, we, it's got to go. And so he spoke to Mary and said, dear, I, I want to get rid of our salary, everything. And she sort of gasped and said, well, what do you mean? And he said, I I, I don't want this this regular income anymore through the the pew renting. I think it's wrong. And she said, well, how are we going to survive? And, And he said, well, the Lord will provide. And she said, okay. 
much to her credit. And so they gave it up. They instead put a little box at the back of their chapel and said, free will donations. And people were absolutely horrified at this, particularly other, other pastors and so on. This was outrageous. This was changing ancient traditions. And not only that, but people didn't want to donate. What for? They could sit wherever they liked now. They weren't getting anything anymore, so why should they donate? And so George and Mary found themselves dirt poor. They had nothing. They had given up their £55 a year salary and now they were relying on people dropping a few coins in the box. And people generally, well, some people did, sometimes they didn't. But you see, George knew that what he'd done and the decision he'd made was right because it was, he took the Lord at his word and he knew that in the scripture there was this promise that the Lord would provide if you honour him and trust him and that he would guide you. And so he said to the Lord, you know, I've done this because I think this is right and I know that you will provide for me. And the Lord did. Sometimes George and Mary would sit down at their dinner table and in front of them would be an empty plate and an empty cup. They had nothing, not a penny to buy even a loaf of bread. And they would sit there and George would say grace and thank the Lord for his provision. And then on numerous occasions, and he recorded this in his journal, there'd be a knock at the door and someone said, do you need a ham? Or something like that. Or somebody would say, "Uh, I couldn't sit down and eat because the Lord told me I had to come here and give you this loaf of bread. And each time, you know, George would thank the Lord and say that again to Mary, see, the Lord provides. Now Henry had moved to Bristol, Henry Craig. And Bristol was a city and Henry had moved there and he was wanting to serve in some chapels there in the middle of Bristol, in the middle of the city there. And he really wanted George to come along with him. Now George at this time had been in Tainmouth for quite a while and he also felt that it was time for him to move on and so he decided that he and Henry would be co-workers and together that they would serve the people in Bristol. There were two chapels and they would take turns to preach in these. They would work together and they would get rid of the pew renting. They would live very simply by the donations of the people and so on and that would be how they would run. And so this was a very hard move for Mary because Bristol was a port town and this was the years of the Industrial Revolution. These were the years when people were flocking into the cities and here we had a port town, it was very dirty, it was very crowded, there were lots of industries being set up and uh, Bristol was hardly the place that Mary was used to. She was a country girl who lived in the, in the lovely rolling hills of Devon and Tainmouth and, and those areas and to move to the city was very difficult for her. And it was made even more difficult because there was, just when they got there and they just moved, there was an outbreak of cholera. And cholera is a deadly disease, you know, it was very contagious, Uh, pretty much you die if you get this after one or two days and of course there were no cures in those days. So this cholera outbreak uh, happened just as they moved to Bristol and this was hugely dangerous work for George because he was, he and Henry, they were called to people's homes. People who'd got cholera and were dying, they wanted someone to pray for them. Or the family who'd just lost someone, who'd just passed away, they wanted someone to come in and pray. And George and Henry were exposing themselves to the disease day after day after day and, and putting their hands on people who were sick. And Mary, at this point, was also pregnant with their first child. 
and she was so scared that George would die, would get cholera, and that she would be left alone with the child. The other dangerous thing was that in their chapels, more and more people were coming because death was staring them in the face. And people flocked to the Bethesda Chapel, which was one of their chapels, and and the Gideon one as well. And there were huge crowds of people. And with these huge crowds, it meant that disease could easily spread. In fact, people were told to avoid crowds altogether. But they couldn't ask people to go away. And so George and Henry prayed fervently for their congregation and hoped that nobody would uh, succumb to the illness. And in fact, after several months of this, when the the outbreak had died down, they realised that only one person in those congregations had died from cholera. Lydia was their first child and she was born during this tremendously difficult time and she too survived, which was pretty amazing as well. Now, George had not given up this idea of becoming a missionary. The idea of uh, travelling to the far ends of the earth was still in his mind. And he was thinking about this one day as he walked through the street of Bristol and a little hand tapped him on the elbow and he looked down and there was a little girl, probably about five years old, who was piggybacking a little boy who was probably about one year old, one years old. And... Uh, She was grubby, she was filthy, she had no shoes, her dress was tattered and the kid on the back was floppy and lifeless and also really filthy. And she stuck out a hand and said, please sir, a shilling, a shilling. And of course he gave her something and then he said, you know, where where are your parents, where are you living? And she said, my mother died of cholera and, and my father has never returned from the mines. And just then it was as if the Lord had tapped George on the elbow and shown him his mission field. And he knew from that little tiny encounter that his mission field would not be in Persia or China or those far-flung places with the very sort of romantic ideals, but his mission field was right under his nose here in Bristol. And he soon realised that actually there were so many orphans now Because of that cholera outbreak, so many people had lost both parents or maybe lost a mother and the father had taken off because he couldn't care for all the children. And so there there were so many kids on the streets who were roaming roaming the streets, uh, begging for food. There were many families who were completely homeless because they were not able to... uh, the, The father had died and the mother couldn't support the children and couldn't pay the rent. And so he saw that the mission field was right there in Bristol. Immediately he wanted to do something. And so he asked Mary to make huge batches of porridge. He would uh, invite all the children to come for breakfast. And all the children in his area, they would come and soon more and more children were coming and there would be uh, water outside for them to wash their hands and faces and then they would pile in and they would sit on apple crates around a long makeshift table in their dining room and Mary would dish out this oatmeal porridge and sweet tea and then uh, George would speak about the scripture. He would tell them Bible stories and sometimes he would act out parts of the scripture and soon, you know, adults were coming as well to see... Uh, to to these breakfast clubs as they started to be called. But George saw that this was nothing. This was not doing anything. This was providing one small meal for not even half the children. And he really wanted to do more. 
And so he decided that he would start something very radical. He wanted to start something called the Scripture Knowledge Institute. And he thought that this idea was certainly from the Lord, but he wasn't sure. Uh, he, he had this idea of having schools, and schools like day schools for all these children, the poorest of the poor who would never be able to go to school otherwise. And they're not only schools, but Sunday schools as well, so they could learn the Bible. And he wanted an adult school as well, something so that they could be trained. Then he thought, well, these poor people, they can't afford a Bible, so I'll buy in Bibles and distribute them to all these people. And then he thought, well, I want to also support missionaries who are going to other places. And so he had all these ideas and he spoke so enthusiastically to people about this Scripture Knowledge Institute that he was going to start and everyone laughed at him. He didn't have a penny to his name. He was sometimes stuck there with no food and hoping that someone would donate a shilling so he could get some bread and he wanted to start some schools. It seemed ridiculous. And soon George also became frustrated. He, you know, that he had no money to do this and he had only ideas. And he, in, in his frustration, he fell to his knees one day and he prayed and he said to the Lord, you need to show me. You need to show me if this is just me thinking and planning or if this is actually from you. And I want you to do something specific to show me, Lord. I want you to send me 20 pounds so I can buy Bibles straight away and start giving them to these poor families. When he got up from his knees, there was a knock at the door and a lady was standing there with an envelope and said, oh, I, I just uh, thought you might be able to use this. And George Mueller thanked the Lord. It was an immediate answer to his prayer. He didn't even need to look in the envelope. He knew already that in that envelope there'd be 20 pounds. But just to make sure, he said to the lady, is there anything specific you'd like me to use this money for? And she said, well, well sir, I don't know. Um, you might have some other needs, but I was thinking that perhaps you would buy some Bibles for the poor families. And so George Mueller again realised that the Lord had heard and also that the Lord was behind this. It wasn't just his idea, it was something that was from heaven itself. And so he was sure that because this idea was from God, from heaven, he knew that the Lord would provide everything. And he didn't worry that he hadn't got it and didn't have a cent to his name. He knew that somehow the Lord would provide everything. And the Lord did. And sometimes it was just a couple of pencils. Some people donated a chair or a table or something like that. Some people donated money. Some people donated three shillings and others ten pounds. It was everything that he, he got he recorded meticulously in his books because everything he felt was a gift from God. At the same time as all of this was happening, uh, the family was struck down with a lot of grief. Their second child, Elijah, had been born just a year earlier and now he was, uh, just after his first birthday, he became sick and he died quite suddenly. And this was a great grief to the family. But it was compounded by the fact that Mary, his, his dear wife, had to also uh, lost her father the very same week. And so she was arranging two funerals for her father, for her, her own little boy and it was very difficult for her at this time. And then after that, George again became very sick and the doctor said to him, you need to, you need to stop, you need to get away, go to the countryside and rest, take your little family. And so he was kind of removed from all of this and he really hated being away because he was leaving Henry Craig to do a lot of the work 
and he prayed for him every day as he was trying to recover in, on, on the countryside. But he, he used this time really well. Uh, he read the scripture a lot and he learnt to really read and pray before the Lord. And the other thing he did was he read many biographies. In fact, he read John Newton's biography during this time as well. And after a while, he he'd completely recovered and uh, he returned back to Bristol to continue the work. His keen eye was looking down the role of the children that were enrolled in his school because by now there were a hundred children enrolled. And he was looking down and he noticed that one child had been absent. And he talked to the teachers and said, where is this boy? Why is he not coming anymore? And the teachers said, oh, um, his family was ordered to the workhouses. And George had learned that during this time when he was away, the laws had changed. The English government was running out of money and so they were taking back the handouts they usually gave to the poor and instead establishing these workhouses. There were already some workhouses before, but these workhouses, they, they made more of them. And these uh, places were horrible. They, they're very well documented in history. They pretty much split up these poor families who were unable to care for themselves, either because they were unemployed or uh, they weren't able, weren't able to stay with the rent. And they lived in these places, but families were split up. The men were over here, the women were over there. And they were put to really hard bone-breaking labour. In fact, it, it actually was bone-breaking. They, they shattered bones to be turned into fertiliser. And uh, they, they often had very little food. Uh, it was a pretty grim environment. It was uh, very dirty. And, and the government didn't care because they actually wanted to make it a deterrent. They didn't want poor people to think, oh, I'd like to go over there to that workhouse and, you know, at least I'll get fed. They actually wanted people to stay away. And poverty was almost treated as a crime in, this, in the 1800s. And so this family had become too poor. And, of course, they'd been ordered to the workhouse and, and now that this boy was required to work. Anyone over the age of seven had to work, like all the other men and women. And so suddenly George realised that this was going to happen again and again to all his children because all those children enrolled were the poorest of the poor. Their families had nothing. They couldn't send their kids to get any form of education. So George was providing it, but they're all going to be ordered off to the workhouse sooner or later. And so George Mueller was getting upset about this and he thought, there's got to be a way, there's got to be something I can do to help these children and to ensure that they, they're educated. Now, when he uh, went around and he was visiting his congregation, he noticed this common theme that all the people that uh, he, he served were living either in, uh, in great poverty, in fear of these workhouses. You know, people like fathers were working excruciating hours, often trying to do two or three jobs, working 16-hour days, uh, really hard labour, six days a week, because they didn't want their family to end up in these workhouses. They, they, they were so scared of ending up um, in these horrible places and for the family to be split. And so, you know, George Miller would encourage these people and say, you need to spend time before the Lord. You need to read his word. And they would laugh at him and say, when? You know, we work six days a week, 16-hour days. We come home exhausted only to do it again. It's easy for you to say from the pulpit, it can't be our reality. And George wanted people to, to realise that they didn't need to work so much. He said, if you honour the Lord, he will provide, he will care for you. But so many people said, this is too far-fetched. You know, you, you want us to risk our family for this? 
Mueller's thoughts led him to another radical idea. This radical idea was, to us it's not hugely radical, but then it was. His radical idea was to set up an orphanage. Now, there were only 10 in all of Britain at that time. And in fact, to be, an, uh, to be in this orphanage, you had to be rich. You had to have been left an inheritance. And uh, not only that, but you couldn't be diseased, disabled, just son of a labourer, son of a tradesperson. So really, it was only the very wealthy who happened to be orphaned that could be in these places. And so these places catered for very few people. And there were very few across the whole of Britain. And George Mueller thought, we need something here. And I want to start an orphanage that's for the poorest of the poor. That's not just going to be a roof over their head, but that's going to give them education, skills, apprenticeships. I want to teach them the word of God. I want them to know that their father in heaven cares for the fatherless. And he wanted those children to have to pay nothing. They came with the rags that were on their back. That was what he wanted. And he also wanted to wait on the Lord to provide everything for them. Now, in great excitement again, he announced this at the chapel. And, of course, everyone thought he'd gone mad. In fact, most people said, you know, he's foreign. He's a bit strange. You know, he's got some funny ideas because he's, he's a bit of a foreigner. But, um, but George really knew that the Lord was in this. And he really was sure that the Lord uh, wanted him to continue this work. Now, people started asking him questions. They said, you know, where is it going to be? Where are you going to have this orphanage? And he would say, oh, I don't, I don't know. Oh, when, when are you going to start? Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, well, how are you going to uh, get the furniture appropriate? Oh, I, I don't know. And every question he had to answer with, I don't know. But one thing he did know was that the Lord was behind it in some way and therefore he knew that the Lord would provide all of the answers to these questions. Now, there were some people who were moved by what George Mueller had done. And in fact, the newspapers reported it more as a joke. Foreign pastor wants to set up orphanage in the middle of Bristol, but he doesn't know where. It was, it was more seen as a bit of a lark. But uh, there were a few people who saw that little article, who heard George Mueller and thought, the Lord's in this. And there, you know, sometimes he would open the door and someone would offer him some spare spoons that they had for the orphanage. Somebody offered him 28 tin plates, six cups. Somebody offered him some handkerchiefs that they had to spare. And everything he was given, he felt that it was for the Lord. But one day he was sent in an envelope 100 pounds. 100 pounds is about two years' wages. And he knew who it was from. It was from a widow. And her father had just died and left her an inheritance. But this was her whole inheritance. She'd given everything. And he thought, I can't take this. And so he went to her house and he said to her, you know, you're so kind, you're so good, but I cannot take your, your living from you. You are a widow. I can't take it all. And this woman said, the Lord Jesus died for me. I can give everything to him. And George was really touched by that because he knew that his work was not just for himself and for his own learning, but that it was going to be for everyone and for all of us to learn from him. Now, George Mueller had one clear objective in this orphanage, and it wasn't what you expected. He wrote this in his journal. His clear objective, objective number one, 
was that this orphanage would be an in-your-face testimony to Christians to teach them to trust God because he wanted to do this. He wanted to do it because he knew that God would be faithful and he knew that this orphanage would show that God is faithful and he's a faithful God. And this was going to be his testimony and his witness to the world. He didn't realise that it wouldn't just be for his age, but it, that would, it would be for the age to come as well, for, for, for us here today. And his second objective was to prove that God cares for the fatherless and the unloved. And he wanted to show that to these children. And he wanted to show that to the world. Now, soon enough, there was progress. A little street came called Wilson Street, which was a row of houses, terrace houses, came uh, to his attention. And there was a little house that was for sale there, a three-level terrace, a very ordinary sort of terrace uh, in the middle of Bristol. And he thought to himself, this is it. This is the house that we're going to use. But it was a normal house. You know, the lower level was a kitchen. Then the middle level was a living room. And the top level was just some bedrooms. It was, it was for ten people, pretty much. Uh, but in our, in, in our, for our sort of situation, it wouldn't even fit ten. It was that cramped and small. But he thought, you know, this is a start. And the Lord had provided. And certainly the Lord had provided many donations, whether it be in goods or, or money. And soon he was able to rent the place. And soon there were girls coming who, who were booked into this orphanage from ages 7 to 12. They were uh, starting to live there. And this, this was a, a huge step for him because from nothing, from literally nothing, he had started this orphanage and it had all come together. You know, sometimes he would receive 50 pounds and there was one occasion where he received a little boy uh, who was himself an orphan on the street, held up a shilling and said, I just got given this by a man, but maybe you take it for the girls. And so he recorded in his journal every single little gift that he was given from the 100 pounds to the one shilling. 26 girls were there that first year and they were all crammed into this orderly but uh, very crowded house. For Christmas, they were sent anonymously from the West Indies a box of bananas and oranges, things that these girls had never ever seen. And so the Lord provided sometimes not just their needs, but he, he did some little extra things for them as well. But you see, there were more and more children and, and you know, policemen would walk down the street and there would be these little toddlers walking down the street uh, who wouldn't even know their names. Uh, their parents had died in the home uh, that, or, or something had happened and they were just wandering around. You know, they, 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 were, they didn't know where they could go and they were completely homeless and without anyone to care for them. And so George Mueller knew that he needed to expand this work. And soon enough, another house came for sale, or not sale, for rent on Wilson Street. And he used that for the infants. And he got little tiny, tiny two-year-olds, three-year-olds, sometimes even some, some newborns who parents didn't want because they might have been born out of wedlock or something. And so all these children were cared for. And the older girls would come over to the other house and would help to care for these younger ones. But it still wasn't enough because there were those boys roaming the streets as well. But then another house came up for, for rent. And soon, you know, there was, there was a house for these boys and for them to live as well. And so soon, very soon, there were 81 children living on Wilson Street. 
Now, if we think about this for a minute, George Mueller had wages of the workers. There were governesses in the homes who cared for these children. There were people who helped cook the food. He needed to pay these workers. He also needed food for every day, milk, tea, bread, sugar, uh, sometimes some meat, potatoes, things like that. He needed coal. It was freezing in England. If you didn't have coal, you couldn't cook, and you probably would die in your own home. It was that cold. And then, of course, the biggest thing was the rent the rent for these places, not to mention that all the children need to be clothed because they came with nothing. So all of this he committed specifically to the Lord's care and the Lord provided. These orphans didn't miss a meal. Now we know this because he recorded everything meticulously and he had absolute full integrity before the Lord. If someone gave him uh, £10 and said, please use this to buy clothes for the girls, he, even though they needed coal or bread or something more pressing, he would use that money exactly as the person uh, asked because everything he treated as a gift from heaven. But soon there were complaints on Wilson Street. You see, the other residents didn't like the fact that there were now 120 children living on that street. Of course, there was noise. And even though they tried to keep it down, you know, there was one house, which the corner one, that had a yard, and all the children would come out and take turns to play in this tiny little yard in front of the house. But, you know, the, the residents didn't like it. They, they, they complained about the noise. Children in those days were seen as pests, and they were to be seen and not heard. That was, that was the thing. And so with 120 children on the house, uh, on that particular street, the residents were not happy. And so George Mueller understood this. And he also thought to himself that perhaps it would be so much better for his children to have space, that the boys could run around, the girls could uh, just uh, have a bit more space and not be so cramped. And it would be so much better to have fresh air as well. And so he had this idea and it was so, so ambitious. He wanted to buy land in the country outside of Bristol. And not only that, but he wanted to build something that was purpose-built, not these little tiny terrace houses, but something that was designed for these children, something that would be just for them. And he, he didn't know how to do this because, of course, to move 120 children, to buy land, to build, ugh, you'd need tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds. Well, he did pray for months about this. It was hugely ambitious. And he prayed and he prayed. And after he prayed one day, again, he had prayed very specifically to the Lord. And he said, Lord, you must give me a clear sign that I'm not just creating ideas here, but that this is from you. And again, the Lord answered. And there was an anonymous envelope with 1,000 pounds. Huge amount of money. You know, uh, a lot of many years' wages, you can work that out. So this was a huge sign that this was the right thing to do. But still, that was not enough. Then he met somebody. It was actually a relative of Mary and it was a chance meeting. And George Mueller had a principle that he would never ask anyone for anything, no matter how great his need was. He would never ask. Um, and he was talking to this person and he told this person that he was going to build a house uh, that the Lord had uh, told him to do this. But he didn't say that he needed help with it. He was just saying this as a matter of fact. And the man, this uh, relative of Mary's, sort of said to him, well, I've, I've been praying actually and I wanted to use my gifts in some way to serve the Lord. Perhaps I could help. 
And George Miller said, oh, well, in what capacity? And he said, well, uh, I'm an architect and I'll do it for free. And so there again was another sign. And this man, who had been praying about this for um, a, a long time, he knew that this was also his chance to serve the kingdom in some way. Now, the land around Bristol was far too expensive for the money that they had, but there was one bit of land which George Mueller thought was just perfect. And there was a big landowner there, but George didn't need a lot of land. He thought just seven acres would be enough, which is quite, quite a big uh, plot of land already. And he, this, this person was going to sell it for £200 per acre. It was just going to be too much. And he certainly didn't have the money for that, and then a building as well. And so Mueller again brought this before the Lord. And uh, the man who was going to sell it and was in his head had 200 pounds, that was, that was what I'm going to do. That night when he went to sleep, he could not sleep at all. It was like the Lord was poking him, keeping him awake and the Lord said to him over and over again, you're not selling it for, 100, uh, for 200 pounds, you're selling it for 120. And in the morning, bleary-eyed and, and a little bit shaken, this man went to George Miller and said, forget the 200 pounds, it's 120 pounds per acre. And uh, George was quite surprised and he said, please, please accept because the Lord has made that very clear and I want a good night's sleep. And so George was overjoyed because the 120 meant that he had enough money and he was able to buy the land. And the land that he bought was called Ashley Downs. Now, this plot of land um, was the beginning and of course with the help of the architect they soon had a building that was far beyond anyone's expectations. Here was a building that wasn't just going to be for the 120 children. It was a building that was uh, built for 300. And soon, you know, people heard about this. Not only people in Bristol but other people in the neighbouring cities heard about this and soon there were orphans being dropped off at Ashley Downs from all over um, England and this was this was um, uh, this work just expanded and so soon 300 was not enough and so there were more and more buildings that were required and uh, they they really designed these buildings for the children so there was an area for the babies there was a huge laundry there was a huge kitchen and a massive dining room there were rooms for sewing and study there were rooms that uh, there were pegs across the walls where people, all the children could hang up their things the, the, the rooms were very orderly and everything was designed with them in mind they even had uh, swing sets and things outside in, in the grass area for the children to play but, of course, you know, um, they, they even had somewhere for medical help, in fact. But despite all this, and despite the increasing work, not only did they have the one house now, but they actually had two, three, and they ended up with five different big buildings catering for over 2,000 children um, in quite a lot of comfort, mind you. They weren't crowded. And despite all of this and despite having a hundred workers who had, genuine, had a genuine care for these children, they were believers. They were people who, who really saw that the Lord was in Mueller's work. And so, you know, these, these people gave themselves to this work. Sometimes, you know, when, the, when they ran out of bread, which still happened despite the number, you know, these, these workers would take out of their own wages to, to buy bread for that day for, their, for the children. So these, these people were not just your ordinary workers who just wanted to do the job to get the cash. They really um, honoured the Lord in their work. And despite all of this, or, or maybe because of all of this, rumours started to spread. And they certainly weren't good ones. 
There were rumours that George Mueller's orphanage was a horrible place, infested with rats, that the children were half-starved and crawling with lice. There were rumours that George Mueller treated the children like slaves. He had 2,000 slaves under his power and that he was power-hungry. He misused the money. He got these donations and then he spent it on himself. All of these rumours were spreading and and people started to look on George Mueller and Ashley Downs with, with some suspicion. And uh, people, people also um, you know, wrote articles about this and so on. Now, this came to the attention of a very famous person at that time. This person had done a lot in England to raise awareness about the plight of orphans and the big problem in Britain about the, the rich being so rich and the poor being dirt poor. And this man had written stories, stories that had made people sit up and take notice. Uh, one of his most famous stories, which some of you might know, was Oliver Twist. Charles Dickens was very angry about George Mueller. How dare he have all these orphans in, under his, uh, his control and treat them like that? So Charles Dickens decided that he would make the journey to Bristol, go to Ashley Downs and speak to George Mueller in person. Well, when George Mueller found out that Charles Dickens, the famous author, was coming, he couldn't have been happier. He was so happy that this man had taken the time to see for himself. And so Charles Dickens came with the, the attitude of someone who was going to you know, uh, really blast George Mueller for his, his bad behaviour. And Mueller said to the worker, please, here are my set of keys. You take Charles Dickens everywhere. If Mr Dickens said he wants to look in that cupboard, you open it for him. You show him into every shed, storeroom, room, everything. You let him go anywhere he wants. And so Dickens, you know, he went with this worker and three hours later he returned and he was wide-eyed and shocked that the rumours were so wrong. He had seen order and peace. When he went into a washroom, because he went into the bathrooms and had a look, he saw on the walls pegs for all the children to hang their toiletries. He saw that the girls each had three pairs of shoes. They all had winter coats and summer dresses. The boys were, well, they were not just educated in a traditional way. They They were doing things like woodwork. There was a nursery so nicely set out for the children. There were toy boxes. Each child had little pigeonholes for little toys that they liked and they could put their toys in those pigeonholes. And they, they were fed so well. And the workers didn't just care for these people. They loved these children. And Dickens was so enraged, in a different way now, that he immediately went and wrote an article in his very famous magazine uh, to squash all of those rumours that were fired against George Mueller. Now, money was still required. And, you know, we think, oh, you know, they must have been fine now. You know, there's 2,000 orphans and so on. But money was still scarce because George Mueller lived with the same principle. He wanted to live in a way that would show everyone that the Lord is faithful and that the Lord would provide. And to give you an example, there was one day where in one of the orphan houses they had nothing. There was not a cent. They couldn't buy anything. And 300 children had filed in for breakfast and they all stood behind their table, their their little chair and they sat down. But the bowl in front of them was empty. The cup in front of them was also empty. And George Mueller was not at any way, in any way deterred. He said, you know, 
to the children, you will see today that the Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father, cares for you, the fatherless. You're going to see it in action today. And so he gave thanks for their non-existent breakfast and they all sat there and as, as soon as he had finished giving thanks and thanking the Lord for his faithfulness and his provision, there was a knock at the door and a baker shuffled in, a little bit embarrassed, and he went to Mueller and said, I really couldn't sleep last night, uh, so I got up at 2 a.m. and I baked trays of bread. Maybe they could come in handy. And Mueller was not surprised. He thanked the Lord for using this, this man to bake the bread and he handed out this freshly baked bread to the children and said, See, children, the Lord, he provides not only what we need, but he has now given us double blessing, fresh bread, warm, out of the oven. And then, when the baker had gone, there was another knock at the door, and a very flustered milkman came in and said, Please, uh, Mr. Mueller, have you got some of your older boys? Can they come and help me? My, the wheel on my cart has been damaged. I need to unload my cart. And look, if, if you can... Get rid of this milk for me, that would be helpful because I need to unload it to fix the, fix the cart. And so these young boys travelled out. They got cans of, uh, they got the cans of uh, milk and they all had fresh milk. 300 children were provided for that morning. Now, Henry Craig died at the age of 60 and this, this death was very difficult for George Mueller. He'd lost his co-worker and it was with a very heavy heart that he conducted that funeral service. He and Mary worked very, very hard, and now they were in their 60s, and it was, it was a pretty tough schedule they kept. He preached three times a week in the chapel, oversaw the supplies of the, and the accounts of this huge uh, estate with 2,000 children. He also kept on with the Scripture Knowledge Institute. There were still children going to his schools and his Sunday schools. Not only that, but he had befriended and he was a huge encouragement to a missionary in China by the name of James Hudson Taylor. And he also had uh, really done everything he could to send money to, to Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission. Uh, and, was, and, and his principles of living by faith and trusting the Lord and never asking for money was something that Hudson Taylor really took to heart as well. He also met with every single orphan who was at that age where they could leave and, and do an apprenticeship or maybe start work. And he met with them so that he could actually encourage them and ensure that they um, walked with the Lord. Now Mary too worked very, very hard. And in the 21 years at Ashley Downs, she had never taken a day off. And so... On one day, when she said to George, I need to go back to bed, he immediately called a doctor. He knew she was really unwell. And the doctor did come and declared that she had rheumatic fever, serious, serious illness. Now, George Mueller, a man of faith, he didn't have a word from the Lord in this situation. He knew that in the scripture there was no promise of healing, but there was promise of one thing, that the Lord does not withhold any good thing for those who walk uprightly. And so he prayed that prayer. He said to the Lord, don't withhold any good thing from me. If that means you're going to take Mary, then I'll know that that is the good thing for her and me. And the Lord did take Mary, and not very soon after. And she passed away, leaving George alone with his daughter Lydia and 2,050 orphans to mourn for her. 
Mueller spoke at her funeral and he, he found it very difficult but he had one verse, Psalm 119.68 You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. George and Mary had talked about how they would uh, pass on the baton and they had already selected somebody by the name of James Wright. He, was, he had already been working with them. But little did they know that James Wright was actually in love with their daughter Lydia. Now, James and Lydia were sort of advanced in age. They were, they were in their 30s and both of them had given everything to serve in this orphanage. And when they were married, it was just uh, the perfect thing. It was the Lord's appointment. They were both so capable, they were able to run Ashley down so very effectively. George himself later remarried and uh, then he found himself with some free time. And now the Lord put on his heart that he needed to travel to go to different countries. He was in his 70s, mind you, and he didn't, it wasn't to so much to give the gospel, but he wanted to encourage other Christians to live for the Lord and to live by faith and to trust in the Lord's faithfulness. He saw so many Christians living half-lives, you know, not quite trusting, not quite putting their faith in the Lord, and he really wanted to, to change that. Of course, travel in those days was tough and he was in his 70s and 80s and during that time he travelled to China, Hong Kong, India, the Middle East. He travelled to uh, Italy, Australia and New Zealand. And in some of those places, I, I know in New Zealand, he actually stayed with one of the orphans who had grown up at Ashley Downs. Now, George Mueller outlived his daughter, who died suddenly in her 50s, and his second wife. And in his old age, and the very first picture you saw was him in his 90s, um, in his old age he hadn't slowed down and he'd moved out of his little home and he'd come to live in, in one of the orphan houses on Ashley Downs. And finally at 92 he started to get a bit tired. He actually said to his son-in-law James, he said, I'm feeling a little tired today and, and James had said to him, well, perhaps we can get someone to care for you, maybe to, to help you get dressed in the morning and help you out of bed. And George had said, oh, no, 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 not today. We'll talk about it tomorrow. But tomorrow never came for George Mueller because that, that, that night, probably at dawn, uh, he died and he uh, went to be with the Lord. 1.5 million pounds passed through George Mueller's hands. He cared for 10,024 orphans. 120,000 children were educated at his schools. And he had given out tens of thousands of Bibles to the poor. This man's funeral was the biggest funeral that Bristol had ever seen and perhaps will ever see. 2,000, those 2,050 orphans, all of whom could walk, followed his carriage into Bristol. Orphans who'd lived at Wilson Street, who'd been, people who'd been touched by him, lined the streets um, as he came and the whole city came to a standstill. The newspaper of the day wrote, George Mueller had robbed the cruel streets of many orphans. And how had he done this? Through prayer. But it's perhaps best to sum up this man's life in his own words. My dear Christian, will you not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and happiness of this 
way of casting all your cares and burdens and necessities upon God. This way is as open to you as to me. Everyone is invited and commanded to trust the Lord and to trust him with all his heart and to cast his burden upon him and to call upon him in the day of trouble. I long that you may... Will you not do this, my dear brethren in Christ? I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can yet be at peace because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you.